All right. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we're going to be headed. And after uh, several weeks, if not, I guess now months, in the book of Hebrews, you guys all know collectively that the theme of the book is Jesus is better. And what we've seen through these last several uh, weeks and months is Jesus is better than anything we could ask, think, or imagine. And so for the writer of the book, he's laid it out there that Jesus is better than uh, prophets, he's better than uh, angels as messengers, he's better than Moses, Abraham, Joshua, going all down through the list, including the actual uh, priesthood itself. And so as he has laid it out there that Jesus is better, when we got to chapter 8, what the writer says is, uh, this is the main point. I'm trying to drive home this point. And when we arrive in verse uh, 8 of chapter 8, what we see is a reference back to Jeremiah 31, where God gives a new covenant. And so as we see Jesus being better, the promise is actually there of him giving us a new, a better covenant. And in verse 8, he says, repeating Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And so what we saw last week is this promise of a better covenant, a replacement of the old covenant, which could really only uh, point out sin. That's what the law really did. Paul said in Romans 7, it's like a mirror. Is it sin? Absolutely not. But I didn't understand my sin until I looked into the law and went, oh man, I'm a sinner. I'm undone. And so in peering into the law, it pointed out the sin of the people, but it could not put it away. And the new covenant, what the Lord tells them is, I'm going to put your sin away. I'm going to deal with it once and for all. And that's a big difference for us to consider putting away sin or just merely pointing it out. I don't know about any of you, but as a kid growing up, there were times where I was told what to do and not to do, and I just couldn't do the right thing. Now, for most of you, you're probably fantastic children. But for me, at various times, I had struggles. I knew the law, and yet I disobeyed the law. And as a result, I had to suffer the consequences of the law. But man, leading up to that, I felt horrible. Because I knew I had gone directly against what the law that was given to me stated. My parents had told me what to do and what not to do, and I felt awful, separated. I knew that my sin had condemned me until the time to make payment. And so the payment in my house as a kid growing up oftentimes took the form of a spoon. And the spoon conveyed the payment of my sin directly on my backside. Now, after I had experienced this very direct application of the law onto my rear, uh, I came away with a few different things. One, uh, my butt hurt. But secondly, uh, you know what else? My sin had been paid for. The debt had been paid, and now what had separated me, I now had payment for that, very direct and painful payment, but interestingly enough, I didn't have the guilt and the feelings like I had done wrong any longer because now I was a part of the family again. And so what we see is that with the law, it could point out sin. There was a payment in the form of an innocent animal, someone, something giving its life on our behalf, but even looking into that, what you know the people felt was a continual guilt. Like that animal had to give its life for me. Is that really enough? Am I really forgiven? Do I feel like I am now a part of things? And so the kofar, the covering was only temporary and it never gave the feeling of actual removal of sins. The old covenant couldn't remove the sins and give the feeling like they were a part of things again. And until Jesus, excuse me, until the Lord communicated through Jeremiah chapter 31, and what he says is, I will remember your lawless deeds no more. Now, God, it's important to point out, doesn't have the ability to forget. He's God, but he willingly chose to forget. 
He looked at our sin and said, you know what? I'm going to not, I'm going to intentionally not remember that. I'm going to look the other way because when he looks at us now, all he sees is the perfect blood of Jesus. That your sins are forgiven. I can see the payment has been made. But it's important to note that that wasn't free. I get really upset when I hear the free gift of salvation that gets touted all over the place. This is a free gift, a free gift. And while that we may be able to come to Christ through no particular work of our own, it was anything but free. It cost Jesus everything. He had to leave everything behind on our account. And so it was a very exceedingly costly gift, but the reality of it is it dealt with our sin once and for all. Sin could be put away. And in verse 13, a new covenant... He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so now the old covenant, there's no need to go back to that because this new covenant has the ability to actually put away sin. And as we transition now into chapter 9, what we're going to see is the old covenant is going to be put away. The new covenant is now there, which means all the trappings of the old covenant are not necessary any longer, including what they loved which is their temple, their sanctuary. Why? Because Jesus has become a better sanctuary. In him is our sanctuary, which leads us to chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service. And the earthly sanctuary. 4, verse 2, a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was a lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And so in Exodus, what we see is God giving Moses a very clear direction on how to construct this building called the tabernacle. And what the tabernacle really was, was like a portable way for God to be able to go with the children of Israel as they made their way through the wilderness, but for him to be right in the middle of the camp. God was able to go camping with the people, be right there, and his presence would fill the tabernacle. But the point of the tabernacle was for God to reconnect what had been lost through their own sin nature and be right in the midst of them. And so for a little layout of what the actual uh, tribe, the nation of Israel, would look like when they're camping out in the wilderness with, the God, with God, I'm going to show you, if it comes up, an actual scene of what the camp would look like. Now, if you go through the book of Numbers, you'll see God give them a very specific order of how the different tribes would line up around the tabernacle, with the tabernacle being in the midst of the camp. And the tribes were of various sizes, so God assembled them in their various sizes around the encampment to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west, but the tabernacle being in the middle. Now, uh, it's fascinating when you really lay this out, and what you guys have already noticed as you look at the screen is here's the tabernacle right in the middle and the nation of Israel gathering around it uh, in the shape of a cross. In the shape of a cross with Christ literally being right at the center, the very presence of God being right there, dwelling in the midst of the people. And so God's leaving us these messages throughout the Old Testament to point that uh, Jesus was there all along. Now, in this uh, tabernacle setting, as you go into the tabernacle itself, you have on the outside a courtyard. And the courtyard was separated off with these uh, curtains that would go all the way around uh, the courtyard. And when you walk in there, you have this uh, altar that they would offer the offering on. So the animal would be slain. It would then be placed on this altar. And that what they would do essentially is uh, barbecue it. They would have themselves a good old Midwestern barbecue and out from inside the tabernacle courtyard you would see the smoke you would smell the barbecue and like many of you you're like that smells pretty good right like that that smells like my neighbor if you're like me I peer my head over the fence just to see what they're cooking maybe they'll invite me over and so we see this uh, barbecue is taking place now and in fact what God had given them the ability to do through the peace offering is they would actually they were able to bring an animal in as a peace offering and offer it to God but then also a portion of it went to the priests and a portion of it was consumed by the people that made the offering now why is that important well it's important because what God wanted to do was have communion with them he wanted to dine with them. This is why even to this day, having a meal with someone is so very, this is kind of a creepy word, uh, intimate. 
Like I say the word and you're like, Ugh. but the idea is you would have dinner with someone and if you had bread, for example, you would break the bread, uh, the bread you would then consume, uh, they would consume the bread as well and you're processing that food at the same time. It's shared together and the bread, in, in a sense, actually connects you two together. You have this relationship now through the food that you're both consuming. And so when it comes to the tabernacle, they were able to consume the same thing that God consumed, the same thing the priests consumed. And so all of them then interact in community uh, together. Now, when you get uh, there in this holy place and you go into the temple, excuse me, into the tabernacle itself, what we just read is when you walk into the tabernacle, if I can get the screen to go to the next slide here in a second, what you'll see is there's a table of showbread, 12 loaves of bread, that uh, one for each tribe in the nation of Israel. And also inside this tabernacle uh, to the other side was the menorah, the seven lamp uh, candle stand that would be the only light in the entire room. And so you've got this beautiful table of uh, freshly baked bread. You've got the menorah. And you also have the bowl of incense, which was to symbolize the prayers of the people going up to God. And so what you have is this direct correlation to Christ Jesus, who says in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. And so the very bread of life exists there inside the tabernacle. On the other side, the only light in the entire room, the menorah, what Jesus would say in John 8, 12 is that I am the light of the world. And so the light of the world and the bread of life are all right there in the tabernacle. And then the incense is going up. The prayers of the people are going up to God. A beautiful, savory incense. Now, all this is taking place inside of the tabernacle. But on the outside, if you just looked at it, uh, from that mountaintop setting, what you would see is one very, very, very plain-looking building. I mean, this thing was not only plain, it was, it was kind of ugly. Like, it was, it was covered in uh, badger skin, is what we're told. And I don't know if in human history, badger skin has ever been a popular look for anybody. But it was very functional in the sake of the uh, tabernacle. It kept the water out very well, but it, it looked very ordinary. Inside, it was extraordinary, but on the exterior, it would not have looked like anything all that special. And I think that's important as we draw the correlations to Christ Jesus, because what Isaiah 53, 2 says of the Messiah is that he will have no form or comeliness. There will be nothing about him where you go, man, the Messiah, one good-looking dude, like the Jewish Brad Pitt. Like, look at that guy. He must be the Messiah. No, what Isaiah says is he's going to look like uh, every other 30-year-old Jewish guy. <laughs> and, and that also points out the, the brown uh, badger skin. This is something that flies in the face of Western America. Uh, here's a little newsflash. Jesus wasn't a white guy, right? For some of you, you're like, oh, say it's not so. No, he was most likely brown, just like the badger skin that covered the tabernacle. He was a Middle Eastern Jewish guy. And so we see all these correlations, and yet inside the tabernacle, when you went in, everything was inlaid with gold. Gold. This menorah lighting up the gold where it reflected all over the room. Beautiful colors, beautiful curtains, the smell of fresh baked bread and this savory incense rising up to God. It was wonderful inside. The very uh, picture of the heavenly scene taking place inside the tabernacle that only a few got to see and experience. And so we see in Christ Jesus the very presence of God dwelt in him. What everybody else looked at and just wanted to pass on by, the presence of God existed. It was something beautiful, something otherworldly that was inlaid with gold in him, if you will. Now, back to verse 3. And behind the second veil, uh, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so what we see is now you have this entrance into the Holy of Holies, this veil that separated the 
inside of the tabernacle from the most holy place that the high priest could only go into one time a year. And what was inside that room was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the Ark of the Covenant was, as described here, the jar of manna. You guys will remember when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, God provided them bread from heaven. It was his way of providing for his children. They looked at the bread from heaven and said, what is it? And so God gave them the Hebrew word manna, which literally means, what is it? But God said, this is bread from heaven. That's what it is. Now, this is a symbol of God's uh, continual provision. The next thing that was in there is the rod of Aaron. As Aaron's authority was being questioned by the nation of Israel, what God said is, I want you to bring out all the people that question and say they have authority, have them take their staff and throw it down, and we'll have Aaron throw his staff down. And as Aaron threw down his staff, they came back the next day, and his staff that looked like a dead piece of wood, it actually budded. It had almonds on it. And so God was clearly stating Aaron had been given authority by him. And so this staff represented God's authority. Now then finally, the tablets of stone, that would be the law of Moses. And so in the Ark of the Covenant, you have God's provision, God's authority, and God's law all right there, and all that overlaid by the mercy seat. So, let's continue. You guys are fascinated with this, I can tell. Verse 6, Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing services. And so, here what we see is the priests had uh, jobs. They would go into the tabernacle. Uh, They would trim up the wicks on the candles. They would make sure they had olive oil in them because the menorah had to stay lit all the time, 24-7. So they had duties to fulfill. The showbread had to be changed out uh, once a week. And so they would go in and change out the bread. They would make sure the bowl of incense had the right mixture there and it was always raising incense up to heaven. So they were ministers, servants, inside the tabernacle proper. Now, verse 7, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And so this goes back to that one time a year, Yom Kippur, that you all could experience if you were Jewish people. What you would do if you imagined, here's the scene, uh, on October the 5th, 2022. You guys are all now Jewish. Congratulations. We are now uh, at the tabernacle. We're in the courtyards. We're looking into this scene where the high priest is going to go the one time a year to offer atonement for the sin of the people. And so the high priest, he would have been there uh, for a week ahead of time, getting himself prepared, uh, making sure that he was uh, sanctified, set apart, had done all the washings necessary. They would have then brought out the uh, animals of sacrifice. And what it would have been is uh, two bulls, and two goats. Uh, He then would have taken off his high priestly robes down into his uh, linens. It was kind of like his uh, linen long underwear. And so he's taken off the high priestly robes, he's down into his linens, and then he uh, begins the process of sacrificing these animals. The first for himself and his own sin issues, the second for the sin of the people with the two bulls. He then would take the, the goats and do the same thing, only he would set one goat aside. So One goat would be sacrificed. One goat would be set apart. He then proceeded in his linen garments with the blood into the Holy of Holies. And this is where we all, watching this happen, take a deep breath. (gasps) Wondering if he's going to make it out of life. Is this dude going to be able to pull it off? He would sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat seven times and on the ground uh, seven times. And after he had done this multiple times for his sin and the sin of the people, he would then come out of the holy place, come out into the courtyard where he would take the goat that was set aside and he would literally take his hands and place it on the head of the goat and pronounce the sins of the people on the head of the goat and send it out into the wilderness. And it was called the scapegoat. This is where we get the term scapegoat from. And so literally, he would smack that goat on the hind end and send it on its way. And Everybody would look, make sure the goat went far enough away. They would position priests along the trail out into the wilderness to report back, the goat's still going. He's still going. Tell him to get those sins out of here. And so this very visual representation, as the priests would say, bear the sins and be gone. Be away from us. 
But here's the thing. All that, in doing all that, it only atoned for the sins. They had to repeat this year after year after year. But the sins were not atoned for unless the high priest came out alive. If the high priest uh, died in there, what that meant is their sins were not forgiven. If he did not emerge, and so you can imagine this scene, as the high priest emerges, he pronounces the sin on the scapegoat. I mean, it's like Sunday afternoon football. Woohoo! Yeah! I mean, they are celebrating because their sins are forgiven. Forgiven! Yeah! Now, here's a little bit uh, of food for thought. Imagine Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And I'm going to suggest to you that what he did on that uh, Good Friday is he entered into the Holy of Holies, wrapped in, anybody remember? Linen. Wrapped in linen, placed upon uh, the slab, the stone rolled in front of the door, until three days later, where he emerged victorious. And to just uh, color in that picture, because some of you are like, are you sure? That seems not right. I'm going to go to John chapter 19, excuse me, John chapter 20, verse 11. <clears throat> and this might have been something you looked past previously, so just consider it. Uh, verse 11 of John chapter 20. But Mary, this is Mary Magdalene, stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. When she stepped into that tomb, what she saw was the same picture that was the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim on each side of the Ark with the mercy seat down below. She sees an angel at the head, an angel at the foot, and blood dripped upon that stone slab. That what she found was the great high priest, Jesus Christ, had emerged. And guess what? The story was the same. Only even better, it was victorious, forgiven. Sins had not just been atoned for, but they had been forgiven for all of eternity. Now, you get the idea of the scene, what was really taking place. We continue in verse 8, I think it was. The Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience concerning only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation." So we see is with the priesthood, they had very limited access. Again, remember, only one time a year could the high priest go in. And the access was not only limited, but so was their effectiveness. It could only last for one year. That's all the further the atonement could last. And not only that, but if you go back and read, what it says is the sins would be forgiven for the ignorance of the people which means the trespasses. You know, that's where we just don't feel like doing the right thing today. Uh, there was no atonement for those things. And so now a so much better of a sacrifice that Jesus Christ has taken all of that away. But in this part that we're in right now, one man, one time a year, and not only that, but the man who went in, he was also a sinner. And so you have an imperfect man offering an imperfect sacrifice, and it was all limited in this setting. Now, I've just given you this whole description of the scene. We're there uh, at the tabernacle, and here's a little bit of application and a question for you all. Um, where are you at in this picture? Are you, first of all, uh, out in the courtyard? I hope you're there. I really do. I hope you're there where you can uh, celebrate salvation. Whereas Jesus, our high priest, emerges, I mean, you can go, woohoo! All right! And feel good about what he has done for you. Putting sin away for all of eternity. Now, there are others who are a little bit further along. Maybe you're in the spot of your ministering. You're ministering to others. 
uh, around you. You're ministering maybe in a formal setting, but either way, uh, you're trimming the candles. You're like those priests. They go in there, uh, they're trimming candles, they're doing the work, shining their light, right? They're making sure the light of Jesus is shining bright. It's a wonderful spot to be in. But in both of these cases, I want you to understand that's not the best spot to be in. The absolute best spot to be in is in the most holy place. And that's really what I wanted to pose for you and myself as well is, are you spending time in the most holy place? It's a wonderful thing to celebrate. It's a wonderful thing to do the work that God has given you to do, but no different than what uh, happens in the scene in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. That's the story of Mary and Martha, right? Martha, she's serving. She's doing her thing. She's trimming the candles and she's taking care of people. But here's Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha's upset because she's looking at this scene like, why am I working? And Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus tell her? That Martha, don't criticize. She's doing the better thing. She's She's doing the better thing because she's sitting in the presence of the Lord. And I think the struggle for us is a few different things, potentially, when we don't find ourselves in the most holy place. The first and most obvious is we are distracted. Maybe like no people ever before. I don't know about you, but I sit to try to have my quiet time, and I have that stupid idol phone next to me, spawn of Satan. And the thing dings, and it vibrates, and I convince myself that I, I need it because I'm pulling up my Bible app, but it's so blasted distracting. And we find ourselves in this spot. We are distracted in all sorts of ways, and we cannot just simply sit at his feet and let him minister to us because we're so distracted with everything else going on. But the second reason that I wanted to suggest, it goes a little bit deeper, and, and it's a little more introspective. And I think there's probably more truth here for most of us than we'd like to admit, that we don't spend time in the most holy place because we don't feel worthy. We feel like our blemishes and our faults and our struggles have essentially made us no longer able to sit in the most holy place, or we don't like to think about all those things. We don't like to really consider all the ways that we're tore up from the floor up. So if that's you, here's good news. You've got good company. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. This is Isaiah in the presence of God and how he responded, verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's how it feels, right? Woe is me. Who am I to be in the presence of God? I'm a man of unclean lips. And yet, if you'll allow yourself to go there, here's what the awareness of the sin and our struggle does. It gives us an opportunity to repent. It gives us an opportunity to really be real and say, God, I'm struggling in this area. I'm struggling in this spot. And what takes place inside the Holy of Holies Understand, there's no light in there. The, the menorah was out in the tabernacle proper, but in there, there is no light other than the light of his presence. The Shekinah glory. His glory exists there. And while we are considering all the ways we've failed, what you'll find is his glory will surround you. And when you leave that place, you'll be like Moses. When he was on the mountain and the Shekinah glory was upon him, what did everybody else see as Moses came down the mountain? They saw his face glowing. Like that dude has been around something holy. There is something holy about him. And one of my favorite things I read this week was this, that conscious repentance leads to unconscious holiness. That when we make a conscious effort to sit at his feet and repent, what will happen is unconsciously other people will look at us and go, and they've got something going on. There's some kind of holiness happening in their life, and, and I'm attracted to that. I want to know more about that. We think we're a big mess and a pile, and oh my gosh, I'm so, I'm undone. Woe is me. But what other people look in and see is, man, they seem to have answers. They seem to be at peace in a way that I, I don't understand. And as you mature as a Christian, 
I want to encourage you in this that the most mature and inspiring Christians I have ever been around are the best repenters. I mean, they are fantastic repenters. And to lay that out biblically, if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian in all the New Testament. I mean, the dude wrote 13 of our 27 New Testament books. He probably had it going on. But in his early writings, what he writes is that uh, I am the least of all the apostles. And you're like, well, that's pretty humble. Like Paul's the least of all the apostles. But then later, about halfway through his career, he writes and says, I'm the least of all the saints. Like, well, least of all the saints. I mean, that's, that's pretty humble, Paul. But by the time he gets to the end of his life, getting ready to be beheaded by Caesar Nero, what he writes to Timothy and says is, I'm the chief of all sinners. As even the Apostle Paul matured, and he looked at his life, he realized who he was in the presence of God. But then everybody else looked around and said, man, that's some holiness. I want to know more about that. Now, let's continue. Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And so what we see in these Verses to come, eventually my notes will come up and we won't have to stare at each other awkwardly. It's going to be fantastic when it gets there. I mean, you guys are going to be so blown away by what I've got pinned down. Or we're just going to continue looking at each other like this and wondering why the slides don't advance. But there you have it. Uh, here's the deal. For, for Christ Jesus, what we see is um, he is the writer to the Hebrews is writing to this group of people who are considering going back to a life of temporary covering. They're considering going back to a life where you would have to bring an animal to be sacrificed uh, so you could atone for your own sins. And as we would bring our animal for sacrifice to go through all this pomp and circumstance, the priests would be there and they would inspect the animal. The priest would look at the animal and they would get down there and you know, look behind the ears and under the uh, hooves. That sounds better. They would look all over the animal. And, and they would inspect and look for blemishes. Is this animal uh, blemished in some way and not worthy of sacrifice? But did you ever notice that when the animal was being inspected to see if it was worthy, who wasn't inspected? The sinner. The animal was inspected to make sure the sacrifice was worthy. But the sinner, nobody ever looked and go, whoa, you don't need to be in here. You are way too sinful. Forget about the animal, buddy. But this is exactly what Satan tries to do to us almost every time we come to worship. We come into worship and he begins to whisper in your ear, you're not worthy, you're not good enough. Here's all the ways you have fail, but I point that out to say that it is a lie from the pit of hell. Because what God wanted to do was only inspect the sacrifice. And what we see is John the Baptist proclaiming as the sacrifice was presented in John chapter 1. What does he say when he looks at Jesus? But behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The inspection had begun for the Lamb of God. And so as a result, we are cleansed not because of our own uh, sin or our own righteousness for that matter. We are only cleansed because the Lamb was worthy. The Lamb is worthy. Now, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, uh, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, whom, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so in Numbers 19, we have this whole process that priests would go through to take ashes and actually use it to uh, purify all the utensils that were used. Everything concerning sacrifice was all cleansed through uh, the 
ashes of bulls and goats. This is what he is mentioning here. And yet the comment is, if that was used in the earthly tabernacle, how much more the blood of Christ, who can purify us from the inside out, completely, wholly, totally. And what the enemy wants to do and what Revelation chapter 12 uh, verse 10 says is to continually uh, accuse us. Now I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. That what Jesus did was he cleansed the tabernacle. He cleansed even the heavenly scene. We'll get into that in just a minute. But the accuser wants to accuse us. But what Christ says is uh, they're already cleaned up by the blood of Jesus. What 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 9 says, one of my favorites, highlighter worthy for sure, is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That by his blood we can be cleansed uh, from the inside out of our past, we can be cleansed in our present, and we can be cleansed for our future, for all of eternity. Now, verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For verse 16 Where there is a testament, there must also uh, the necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in the for is in force after men are dead, since it is no uh, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So what we see is uh, Jesus is both the mediator and the testator. Now what you guys know is um, for a will and testament to go into effect, the people that left the will and testament behind have to die. They have to go into the next life in order for the will to actually be acted upon. And so you can imagine how this would look. I'll give my family as an example. Sorry, mom and dad, you're going to have to be dead for this example. But nevertheless, you can imagine if they pass away and they leave a will to my brother and I. Now, when they were alive, I was pretty sure that I heard that I was going to get an inheritance of uh, their gas grill. And I was excited because it was a Weber uh, grill. It's going to grill things really nicely on the back patio. <clears throat> but then they pass away. Uh, they make their way on up to be with Jesus. And now we get out the uh, will and we begin to read it. And what we find out is that my brother Brett is in fact the inheritor of the gas grill. Now immediately I'm upset. I mean, I had already planned it out. I had all my stakes ready to go. And I begin to throw a fit. We need a mediator. And what the mediator does is he goes through the will and he says, oh, you misunderstood what they said. They told you you were going to inherit the gas bill, which is way different than you getting the gas grill. And so that couldn't all be sorted out unless there was a mediator. The the story here in Hebrews, what the writer is trying to convey is uh, we would not be able to receive the inheritance unless the testator had Uh, gone on to die. That's Jesus Christ. He had to give uh, up his life so that we can have the inheritance, which is eternal life. But he didn't just leave us confused, wondering who got what or how this is all going to work out. He gave us a mediator in the Holy Spirit so that as we go through his word, he can actually, by the power of the Spirit, translate the word to help us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, understand what he's trying to to communicate. Now, <clears throat> verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled uh, both the book itself and the people, saying in verse 20, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, almost all the things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So what we see is as the tabernacle is established, that everything had to be cleansed with 
blood. Now, you might ask why. Well, I'm so glad you asked why. Here's the verse that that section of Hebrews is referring to, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, where Moses writes, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And so blood was necessary to make atonement, to purify, to cleanse. The question is, why? And when we read through the Old Testament and it's like, why so much blood? Why does blood have to be shed here and there? It seems like such a bloody book. Why is all this necessary? Well, the reality is um, blood needs to be shed because that's how terrible sin is. If you go back to Jesus being examined, I mentioned that earlier. He came into Jerusalem four days prior to uh, his crucifixion to be examined, starting on Palm Sunday. He would then be uh, crucified on Passover. That is a direct tie to Exodus chapter 12, where they would bring in the lamb into the house to be sacrificed so that the family could live, but they would keep the lamb in the house for, you guessed it, four days to examine. <clears throat> now, I bring that up because there's something else that happens when you bring an animal into your house and you welcome it in for four days, if your kids are anything like my kids, they become uh, attached to it. The lamb begins to get nicknames like Lamb Chop and Little Lammy, uh, probably sleeping with one of the kids or maybe even at the foot of your bed. And then you can imagine four days later when the family's attached and everybody loves a Little Lamb Chop, when you have to then go and slit its throat. And the blood has to be poured out. There is no doubt tears and upset kids and probably upset moms and dads because this thing that you had grown to love, this animal, had to be killed so that you could have life. And so the reason that God allows all this to happen is to demonstrate the severity of sin. God doesn't hate sin because he's a prude and he can't handle sex and violence and all the stuff that the world loves so very much. He hates sin because it, it kills us. It's not sin because it's bad. It's sin because it's bad for us. He hates the fact that it kills relationships. It kills families and kids and careers. And it kills all these things in our life. Sin kills. And so the demonstration is bloody because sin is so very deadly and there is no such thing as forgiveness light wouldn't it be nice if there was I mean less filling still forgives I mean it would be wonderful if there was a sin light but it's not possible it has to be paid for with blood now to verse 23 therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 4, verse 24, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So here's Jesus. He's able to enter into the heavenly scene, but only because blood was shed. Why does Jesus need to shed blood to go into the heavenly scene? Uh, here's the reason. He bore our sins. He took our sins on his behalf. And he went into that heavenly tabernacle and purified it. Now that's going to cause some of us to go, wait a minute. Why would heaven have to be purified? Why would blood need to be shed uh, to, to purify heaven? Here's why. Revelation chapter 12, again verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and its angels fought. But verse 8, they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And so we see Satan actually infected even the heavenly scene. Even heaven had to be purified. 
It, sin affected everything, both heavens and earth. And what Jesus did was, by his blood, he actually purified all of it. He cleansed all of it. Now, as a kid, I had a question. Uh, and it was, if the blood of Jesus is necessary for a sinner like me to enter into heaven, what about all my Old Testament favorites? What about all those heroes of the Old Testament? Did they get to go to heaven or not? Now, uh, this again, probably going to be controversial, but want to open your minds to consider uh, that I believe they actually went to hell. Now, here's what's important to remember. At that time, there were two different compartments in hell. If you look at Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives a description of Lazarus and the rich man. And what he says is that they both descended to Sheol, but Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom called paradise. It was the not hot side of hell, where those who believed in God were actually held. And then on the other side, this great chasm that couldn't be crossed by the rich man, it was the hot part of hell. He could see Lazarus over there, the rich man could. He wanted him to go back to speak to his family and his friends so that they wouldn't have to experience what he was experiencing, but the gulf was too great to cross. And I, I share that to say, here's what Jesus did when he drew his last breath. He was at work from the very time he moved into the next life. And what he was doing was he was bringing all those captives all those from the Old Testament, all those heroes of yesterday, and he was uh, preaching to the captives to bring them back to heaven, that by his blood, they could actually go and be in the presence of God. This is why uh, Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 4, I like to share these things, especially when I bring up a new concept uh, biblically to point some things out. Paul says in verse uh, 9, Now this he that ascended... What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What First Peter chapter 3 would say is that he went down and he preached, he preached to the captives and brought them out of their captivity. And so this beautiful scene where Jesus actually brings those captives out of the spot, Abraham's bosom, paradise, into the very presence of God for all of eternity. Now, back to the text at hand. Verse 25, we're almost there. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Verse 26, he then would have to he then would have had to suffer once since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, uh, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what we have noted already is that year after year, the high priest would have to go into the most holy place to offer sacrifices, but Jesus did it once and for all by sacrificing himself. He did it on his own accord. He didn't need my help. He didn't need me to get my life all together. He didn't need me to serve. He didn't need me to do all the things that I think I need to do for him to save me. He did it himself. Now verse 27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, uh, the judgment. And so what we see is it, it was appointed for man to die, but after this, uh, judgment, that after this life, contrary to what those who want to believe in reincarnation says, is uh, there is judgment. There is no return. There's no opportunity to try to get this thing straight again. It is moving on into a place of judgment. Now, for those that believe in Christ, here's the good news. Um, that judgment is going to mean, uh, it's going to mean, well, Matthew chapter uh, 20, as soon as I get there. Matthew chapter... 20. Matthew chapter 25, verse 23. This is what you'll hear as a believer in Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, and I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. What a wonderful thing to have the opportunity to hear because we believe in Christ Jesus. 
that it's not my righteousness that I'm dependent upon any longer. It is him and his robe of righteousness uh, that he has given me. Now, for those who uh, did not believe, it's going to be something far different than that. It's going to be what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know who Jesus was talking to in Matthew 7? The overly religious. Those who had self-righteousness. That thought they were all that in a bag of chips. And what he says to them is, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. And so what we find is that if you are born once, uh, you will have to die twice, both physically and spiritually. But the beautiful promise of Christ Jesus is if you're born twice, uh, you only have to die once. Resurrection spiritually means we can live through eternity with Christ Jesus because our sin has already been dealt with once and for all. Now lastly, Verse 28, so Christ was offered at once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so the first time Jesus came, it was to deal with uh, sin. The second time he's going to come back, it's going to be for the purpose of salvation. One last trip back to the tabernacle when you think about that scene. As the priest would declare forgiven, what he would also do is put back on those high priestly robes. No longer wearing uh, linen, but instead all the decor, all the ornament, the the kingly uh, robes that he would have on, and people would celebrate. And this is what's going to happen for Christ Jesus when he comes back again. He's going to come back, not for sin, not as a lion, not as a lamb, but as a lion. And what we're going to have the opportunity to experience is mentioned in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, as the thousands and then tens of thousands on top of the tens of thousands say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for being worthy. Lord, we thank you for being for us what we could not be for ourselves, For Lord, you were the ultimate sacrifice, willing to give your life on our behalf. Thank you for being such a better high priest. Thank you for being our sanctuary where we can run and we can turn and we can have access into that most holy place. Lord, would you please challenge us to spend time in that spot, even if it's hard even if it's a struggle at times to to confront and to look at our own sin nature and the times we have failed utterly. But Lord, would you help us to be able to take on your holiness as you shine your Shekinah glory on us. Father, we will take up that challenge. We desire as a people to spend time at your feet in your presence. Lord, please make your way, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.